thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Monday to Friday, 9am to 12pm. This is The Morning Review with Lester Kivett on Cape Talk. 28 minutes to 10 o'clock. Your messages trickling in, but get calling. But what tends to happen is that towards the end of the show, five minutes left, and then there's a flurry of calls. Rather get your questions, your burning questions in now to Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, for the final time for 2021. I, I'm really happy you've taken my advice, Chris, that for at least one Friday, which is <laughs> next Friday, New Year's Eve, you're taking a break from us. It had to happen sometime, Lester. It was a wrench. I really, really struggled with myself to, to pull myself away. But uh, yeah, I, I'm going to have a week off. So I'm sorry and all that. And I, I know, I hope this isn't going to come between us in the long term. But and I hope that you're going to be able to cope next week without me. But um, there we are. I'll, I'll, I have a Google machine here in front of me. If anyone <laughs> has a question. But look, just because you're at work doesn't mean you're not on holiday. I'm here in... Um, in swimming shorts, in flip-flops, and and a T-shirt. No one's going to know. We've not breached that stage of where there's cameras in our studios. Well, I've got, so um, my, I've got my really fancy shirt on today. I've got this really big kind of a print, printy, uh, f- nice decorated shirt, which I think will cheer everyone else up at the hospital today because that's where I'm headed. And a really mm-hmm. nice lady called Fran, she heard my appeal for needing slightly improved dress sense in this coronavirus era, and she has made me a, an infection control friendly, so in other words, short sleeve jumper, which is or a tank top, which is a coronavirus tank top. So you could say it's like an, a cover coat, and it's got a giant coronavirus on the front in red with these mushroom spikes that stick out. They're the spike proteins that are in the vaccines and so on. So that's my hospital uniform today. So I'm, I'm going to hopefully cheer everyone up by looking a little bit on the, on the slightly loud side. Mm-hmm. Let's go to, is it Bernard or Bernard out in Steenburg? How are you doing? Fine, sir. It's Bernard. I've got a question for Dr. Chris. Why does ever when you find a cockroach dead, it's laying on its back? I'm yawning towards this answer for the last 30 years already. Ah, uh, Bernard. <laughs> this is a classic one, and the answer right. is that it's probably down to the ways in which you can arrange a dead cockroach. Now, when a cockroach dies, obviously it could stay on its feet or it could flip over onto its back. Now, if it ends up on its back, it's in a pretty stable configuration, so it's probably not going to come back onto its feet again. So, by and large, you're more likely to find cockroaches on in their most stable way on their backs. Why would it end up on its back to start with? Well, when an animal keels over and dies, like an insect, it doesn't just suddenly have a cardiac arrest like a human does. Often what happens is they go through these sort of death throes and convulsions where some bits of them work and other bits don't work. And then, of course, there's the effect of rigor mortis kicking in as well. The muscles all tighten up on on one side and they can make, make the limbs extend. 
So in the same way as if you jacked a car up on one side only and you kept on jacking and jacking and until it was flipping over, it would eventually roll onto its roof. Well, that's what happens with the cockroaches when they when they peg out because on, on, on one side the legs work better than the others and they end up flipping themselves over. Once they're over, well, they're dying anyway and then they can't get back the right way. So they die like that. So you've got a combination of a very stable configuration that it's not going to reverse from and the, a mechanism for how it gets on its roof in the first place. So that's what we think happens. Thanks so much for that, Bernard. Um, let's go to this question from Gary. Uh, um, with COVID-19 Omicron variant now dominant, what have happened to the Delta variant? Has it just faded away? What actually happens? It's a bit like fashion and Lester shorts, really. When you've got something which is the dominant new fashion, it doesn't mean that the old fashion and the old pairs of shorts and the flip-flops get abandoned and chucked in the waste bin. It means they get pushed to the back of the cupboard. Fewer people are wearing them. Fewer people are seen out and about in them, but they haven't completely disappeared. The Omicron variant is extremely transmissible and it's also able to infect people who've already been infected with variants past and present, sounds like Christmas Carol, doesn't it, of coronavirus. And the consequence of that is you see more cases of Omicron, but there may be some at the margins cases of other variants. So these other variants don't completely disappear unless they are so disadvantaged compared to the new dominant circulating strains that they, they just delete themselves from the gene pool. But ultimately, you do get a sort of purification process where slowly out of the mix emerges the variants that are the most dominant are the most successful and that's the point at which you clear out your cupboard and you do abandon the rather loud shorts and shirts uh, to either the charity shop or the waste bin eventually but for now it's basically a numbers game what are the ones we're detecting the most of the variants that travel and transmit and spread the best and at the margins will be the less common less well transmitted forms to which there's already a good semblance of immunity in the population Margaret in Goodwood, how are you? Good morning. I am very well, thank you. I have got a problem. I am 75 years old, and I recently had a photo taken of myself, which I haven't had photos taken for about 40 years. And when I looked at the image of the photo, this is uh, the only thing I saw was just an old woman. But when I look in the mirror, I don't see that old woman image. I see myself as more alive, more, or should I say younger. And I want to know by Dr. Chris, is it my brain that is, or my eyes that are fooling my brain, or is the reality the photo image? I think this might be a bit like, and Lester will identify with this, when you hear your own voice played back to you from a recording, you think, is that me? That doesn't sound like me at all. Yet when you listen to yourself speaking in real time, to your mind, you sound completely different. And I think it's similar. I think that there's a whole range of filtering going on. When we know we are in the moment, it's us. We are expecting to see ourselves a certain way. We see ourselves a certain way. We hear ourselves a certain way. When we see images of ourselves, what you're seeing in the image is from the perspective that you're not expecting, the camera's perspective, the way in which the person who shot that photo's perspective. 
it's not necessarily what we're expecting. Things leap out at us because we had no control over them, how we were smiling, how we were standing. And as a result of that, it can feel a bit strange and sometimes not quite like us. Do I really stand like that? Do I look like that? And as I say, I think it's the visual equivalent of us sounding a bit different when we hear ourselves play back or when you listen to this programme as the podcast that you can grab from the Naked Scientists afterwards when, when I get around to publishing it on Christmas Eve evening, then um, you'll you're think, gosh, that is that my voice on the radio. And it's, it's one of those things it takes a bit of getting used to. And I think the people that are very good at it have just done it a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Margaret. You're only as young as I, you I feel, kind of... Margaret. That's the bottom line. <laughs> I, I can kind of get what she's going. If I look at myself in the mirror, I, I see myself, but also I see a little bit of my nose. I have a, a bigger perspective. My, 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 my peripherals are there. But if I'm looking at myself through a, a photograph, it is through the perspective of the person who took that picture Um they have framed me in a certain way in taking that that picture, and I'm I'm seeing myself in the way that that person yeah. may have pictured me. Am, am, am I getting it correct? Well, yes, and there's not the same psychological filtering. When we look at things in real time, we are presenting to our attention a heavily filtered form of what's flowed in through our eyes. And we've talked many times on this program about how the nervous system pays particular attention to particular things and ignores other things. It can literally ignore the elephant or, in classic cases, the gorilla in the room to keep your attention focused on certain things. When we're out of the moment and we're being presented with things in a different context, then we notice other things because our attention is not being biased by the way it's focusing on certain things at certain times. When you're looking in the mirror in real time, your attention is very much focused on very specific things. And when you're looking at a photograph, you're tending to look at it in a different way. So different mm. things are presented to your consciousness. And I think that's what's going on here. Mm. Okay, I have a message here. Please ask Chris, how does a chicken make an egg every day in its body? The... Chicken has, in its reproductive tract, almost like a production line for eggs, which start off with just the innards of the egg, and by the time they almost reach the outside world, you've got the, the egg ready to lay. And so the chicken is making eggs in a sequence which it matures over a period of time. And inside an egg, an egg is basically an incubator. And if you've seen where we put very tiny babies that are premature in neonatal intensive care units, we have a sort of cocoon that we put them in a plastic bubble and that keeps them nice and warm and food is fed in there and liquids are fed in there and they're kept nice and tidy and lovely and warm to develop and grow. Same with an egg. It's an incubator capable of sustaining a developing life outside the body for as long as it takes that baby chick to develop into something that can look after itself. And so packed inside the egg is obviously the thing that you need to make a chicken, which is the ovum. In other words, that's the egg, the, the thing that you and I would call an, an egg, like a human egg. That's inside. The yolk is a massive amount of energy in the form of cholesterol and fats and other materials and protein, that, that's also the white, that you can use to build the chicken's body. And then the shell with a membrane inside it, that's the plastic casing of the incubator I just mentioned. And so it starts off with just the innermost bit, the bit that's got the genetic material which when mixed with the sperm from the daddy chicken can make a chick. You've also obviously got the other elements being pumped in there, the food supply and so on. And as it makes its way down the reproductive tract, slowly the calcium 
is added to the outside to make the hard shell. And that's the bit that gets takes the longest and gets finished last. Where does that calcium come from? Birds have special mobilisable stores of calcium in their bones. And so when they're on the lay, they will rob calcium out of their skeleton, put it in their bloodstream, transport it to their reproductive tract and lay it down around their eggs. That's why chickens need to be fed a high calcium diet to make sure that they're getting adequate calcium so that they don't end up with no skeleton because they're laying all the time so they need a lot more calcium to make sure they can do that. So you feed them things like oyster shells and things like that, old seashells, which are full of calcium carbonate, which they can then use to make their eggs strong. Joe in Tableview, thanks so much for calling in. How are you doing? Hi, good morning there. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Dr. Chris, I've got a question here uh, around the uh, Apollo 2 that they sent up in 1971. I want to know, how does that thing get powered and how do we as Earthlings still keep contact with it? It's been flying for many, many years, I believe. But I'm curious to know, how, how is it being powered? A lot of those... And how do we keep contact with it? Sarika, it's a very good question because isn't today there's going to be a, a new uh, telescope being being launched on Christmas Eve? Uh, one of the largest uh, telescopes going to be launched by NASA today. And, and very, very uh, timely question of how do we keep probes going that are floating and somewhere in our solar system, some being sent out of our solar system. How do they keep going for decades? Well, those which can see the sun and have close enough proximity to the sun to gather solar energy, use that as its energy source. So if you've got something like even the International Space Station, for example, where you've got good views of the sun, lots of solar energy, you can deploy a big sea of solar panels, very, very efficient, effective way of creating electricity. So some probes close into the sun will be able to use the solar power that you and I do here on Earth, although slightly souped up and improved and lighter, so that they can generate electricity from sunlight, so solar power. Other probes, including those which are going to be going to the deepest, darkest reaches of our solar system, and those which may even, as you say, leave the solar system, or they'll be in places where they don't have a good line of sight to the sun, dark side of the moon for example what would you do then if you i'm not talking about the the pink floyd album i'm talking about probes that we want to send to go and look at places where the sun doesn't shine quite literally under those circumstances different approaches are used now the the voyager probes are a really good example of this that which have now left our solar system and continue to communicate with us although it takes the message a day to get back from where they are billions of kilometers away they use thermoelectric generators from a nuclear power source. How does that work? Well, you have a very intensely radioactive chunk of radioactive material, plutonium, for example. As this radioactively decays, in other words, its atoms are blasting themselves to pieces and falling apart, they release a lot of energy in the form of heat. So these radio radiogenic heat sources, they're very, very hot. And you feed that heat into a thermoelectric generator which is a a, a special material which has what's called a hot side and a cold side. Now the cold side is easy because you point it out at a dark patch of space and it's then very good at radiating away any heat. The hot side you put near to your radiogenic source and as the heat comes into the thermoelectric generator 
because of the materials that they contain, it causes electrons to migrate to one side of the material and a sea of positive forms on the other side and you can tap off the electrons, send them round the circuit and then return them to the material once you've extracted the energy from them. And it's, it's a bit like the thermal equivalent of a solar panel that extracts energy from photons. So those deep space probes, probes that are not going to be able to use sunlight or for whom it would be impractical to generate electricity using sunlight, you use things like intensely radioactive chunks of material of plutonium and thermoelectric generation to produce energy that way. Papa in Stellenbosch, how are you? I'm wonderful, thank you. Good morning to you both. Morning. I've got a question that's very suitable for this time of year um, and in fact plagued me last night. I would like to know why people snore more when they've had too much alcohol to drink. Hi Pippa, Merry Christmas. And I'm sure you won't be overindulging, you'll just be sensibly sipping a sherry or something, I'm sure. But the answer to this one is, let's step back and say, well, why do people snore in the first place and what's snoring? When we go to sleep, the soft tissue at the back of the throat, at the top of your airway, which is normally held in place by muscles, because your muscles relax, the soft tissue relaxes. Now, in a normal anatomically disposed person who's not overweight and doesn't have a saggy airway, there should be plenty of space when all those muscles relax for the air to whistle in and out without problem. But in some people who, for anatomical reasons, but more commonly because we are too heavy, got too much around our middle and around our neck, or because we've overdone it on the booze, you over-relax your muscles or you have additional weight pushing in on your airway, it can cause the soft tissues to flop down further than they should. And this acts as a flap valve over the airway. So as you breathe in, there's more resistance and the tissue has to keep being pushed out of the way by the airflow. And that makes that waggling noise as, as a person breathes in. And then as they breathe out, same story. So it's all to do with how slack your tissues are and alcohol being a muscle relaxant tends to cause all those things to get worse. So if you're already at risk of it happening and you've overdone the booze a bit, then you make the problem worse, and that's why people snore. Thanks so much for that, Papa. Uh, Chris, I've been told um, by my doctor that the reason why I snore, one of the reasons why I snore, um, is because I have a, a, a bifid uvula. You know, your little hanging thing in the back of, of your throat, mine sort of splits in two. And my doctor says, well, that's related to, you know, the whole structure of your, of your ENT and issues of adenoids. And if you have a bifid uvula, you are likelier, more likely to, to be a, a, a really strong snorer. Any, any truth to that? Do you have a forked tongue as well, Lester? I hope not. I no 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 only to some friends (laughs) I mean this is what I was getting at when I I said you you know some people have anatomical reasons the anatomy Ah. is slightly different in some people but this is not the most common reason the most common reason for acquired snoring so if you snore when you're little that's probably because of anatomical reasons if you become a snorer as you get older it's almost certainly and it's an acquired trait it's got to be that something has changed the most likely thing is that the tissues have become a bit flabbier and floppier and that's been aided and abetted by booze 
plenty of questions with regards to that first question about seeing yourself differently in uh, in pictures and when you see yourself in in the mirror. And there's a question here, and Corin asks whether there is science to RBF. Do you know what RBF is? Chris? No, I don't. What's RBF? A, a resting bitch face. And, and, and relating that to sometimes when you see yourself in pictures and you maybe even don't know, you, there's a photograph being taken of you. People will, will, will accuse you of having RBF. Oh, right. No, I, I was only thinking of that. When I was answering the question earlier, I was thinking there are some pictures of me where I look downright miserable in the picture. And I think, why do I look like that? No, that's just the way I am. So... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's going to come down to the individual, isn't it? And we we mm. all have different faces. We have different facial expressions. Some people are going to have a much happier affect. They're going to look much cheerier. Others, if perhaps they have underlying anxieties or if you've got mm. things on your mind and you're not creating this sort of social construct that we all we all put put out a totally phony face to the world, don't we? People will say to us, "You're right," and you go, "Yep, fine." And then that's obviously a lie, isn't it? So we're very good at social masking. And I think perhaps sometimes when, when we do relax and we don't know we're being photographed and it's just that's your, your natural affect with no social masking, that's what you really do look like. And it probably is a reflection <laughs> on what's on your mind. My wife says she knows when I'm putting on a fake smile. It's, it's, she says it's very, very easy, uh, especially with, with photographs. She knows, uh, Leslie, you're not enjoying this. Uh, but let's go to another message, or let's go to a voice note, 0725671567. Morning, Lester. This is not a question, but a humble request to Dr. Christmas. Whenever he has the time, and I don't know when that's going to be, knowing his hectic schedule every day, Will it be possible maybe to publish a book of the 100 most interesting questions on this program? I think it will be something that many people will be looking forward to. Have a wonderful festive season. Thank you very much. Satan Parker. Thank you, Satan. And you do have a few books out, don't you, Chris? Yeah, I, I did. I went through a flurry in the in the early noughties through to the early teenage years of um, writing some, some science books, published about four and the most successful one actually was our book of experiments. We called it um, uh, Chris Packet Fireworks. And we wrote up uh, the science experiments that we were doing at the time on The Naked Scientist that so people could try at home. And that was that was very, very successful. It's, it's very time-consuming writing books. And so I had to prioritise. And so I decided I would make radio programmes rather than just write books. But maybe I'll, maybe that's a good idea. Maybe in 2022 I should write another one. And I should go back and uh, and, and look over some of these questions because we have got hundreds of radio program episodes archived, hundreds. This program has been happening in one form or another since 2008, so we've got soon it'll be 14 years. It was it was uh, February 2008 when we started all of this, or late January. So it's. It, there's a lot of water under the bridge, lots of great questions in there. So it should be possible to pick through and find some some really golden moments in all of that, I would think. And and some of the things, the questions that were asked, we speculate about the future, of course, all the time, don't we? And you think it would be quite interesting to take some of those speculative answers and say, well, we said in 10 years time, scientists will be doing X. Are they? Let's find out. Maybe there's a maybe there's an idea in that. But Chris, you keep on giving the gifts of knowledge as someone calls you. You are Father Christmas. 
<laughs> on Christmas Eve, talking to us here on the morning review. Oh, you can keep that one. Go ahead and tell, Thank tell you. your friends, tell it's your too family. Generous. You're too generous. <laughs> Shabuddin is asking, morning, Lester and Chris, why do we yawn when we see others yawn, even in a car next to us? I was trying this on my dog the other day because the dog yawned and it made me yawn. And I think, does the reverse also work? Can I make the dog yawn by yawning? So I kept on yawning in a really exaggerated way in front of Bruce, my black Labrador. But he just looked at me like I was more stupid than usual and it didn't work. I think the the reason, therefore, I mean, the the reason this works, it, it has to be a psychological thing. We know that. And it probably, from an evolutionary standpoint, is all about humans as a group organizing sort of self-organizing entity who depend on each other if one person's getting tired it's likely everyone's getting tired so making yawns contagious and catching will have an enlivening effect on the entire group now why might that be useful well it's probably useful because if you are a small group of individuals out uh, worried about becoming someone else's lunch and you need to remain vigilant and alert if one person's nodding off Probably everyone else is too. So if everyone re-arouses themselves and each other, it means that the overall vigilance of the group is greater and therefore the likelihood of becoming someone's lunch or a victim of, of their nefarious activities is lower. The the anatomical reason and the physiological reason we yawn is to do with brain temperature, we think. And if you want to read the research of uh, Gordon Gallup, who was doing this work in New York, he actually showed students. Students will do anything for about five quid uh, or, or a free food or something. So you just recruit a whole lot of students. And he showed them videos and told them they were just rating movies. But actually the videos had some sequences of people yawning in them. And they measured how often people yawned in sympathy with the yawns in the video. And then they asked them either to hold a cold compress on their forehead or to just sit with their mouth open and repeat this. And they found that people who had their mouths open yawned a lot more often mm. in sympathy than people who held the cold compress on their forehead. And the reasoning is when you get very tired, your sleep deprivation is linked to brain temperature going up. And that's also linked to you feeling tired and sleepy. So if you hold a cold compress on your head, you cool the air that goes in. That has a cooling effect on the blood vessels in the head. That in turn has a cooling effect on the brain and can promote more mm. arousal and um, wakefulness. Whereas breathing through but, your but, mouth but, but stops why that is happening. It? Sorry, because we're running out of time. I don't mean to rush, but there's a, a follow-up question that people are asking, but why do you yawn? Is it to get another gulp of oxygen but that's, you, that's what I'm saying, yawn. Lester, that when you yeah. yawn, you lower brain temperature because of cooling yeah. the, air, the blood vessels in your, in your head. And that in turn cools the brain, which in turn reverses some of the tiredness induced and associated with higher brain temperature and fatigue. Yeah. And that makes you more gotcha. aroused, more aware, and therefore more vigilant, more easy to, to spot danger and stay awake. Father Christmas, this Christmas Eve Thank you so much. You've provided so much insight, so much education, so much fun over the last six months that I've been on this show. People are saying we're making them yawn now. But I hope you enjoy the rest of your festive. Happy New Year. I'm looking forward to, re, uh, to, to reconnecting with you in the New Year. Stay well, sir. Yeah, where's my Christmas present? 
it's in the post. You know, the South African post service is rubbish. So I posted it in July already. I should get there sort of April. Okay. Good stuff. All right, Lester. Have a great one. Happy Christmas. Happy New Year, everybody. See you on the other side. And thanks for listening and being part of this, this wonderful program every week in 2021. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.